In the reading corner today, I'm welcoming Flora DeLaghi, and she's talking to me from Belfast. We're going to be discussing her debut children's book, Rescuing Titanic. It's a really fascinating subject, an incredibly moving book. And it's not often that a nonfiction book can move you to tears. And I will admit that this book did that for me. So I can't wait to talk about it with you, Flora. Uh, thanks so much for having me, Nikki. Now, it, it, it is a debut book, so it's quite possible that our audience haven't heard much about you yet. So it would be nice to start a little bit with your background, because it's quite unconventional how you came into yes. being a children's book illustrator. Yeah, definitely a little bit unconventional. Um, art was a big thing for me at school, and I suppose it's somewhere somewhere along along that journey, music took over. Really, I played violin and I played in orchestras, and I decided to pursue that at university. And when I graduated, I worked in a number of different industries. I actually retrained and worked in finance, worked for Citibank for a number of years, and then worked actually made a bit of a sideways jump into PR and worked there for a number of years. But I have to say, I did feel like I was drifting really through all this. Um, I wasn't terribly happy in any of these jobs. And um, I sort of felt I want to do something creative, something I suppose that would be more fulfilling for me. So it was during these years that I, I picked up drawing again, really. I went to evening classes after work and life drawing. And it just became, I suppose, more, a bigger part of my life again. And I suppose I sort of slowly realised I love creating things, love making things and um, telling stories through images. And I decided to take a wee bit of a leap of faith. And I enrolled in the MA in Children's Book Illustration at the Cambridge School of Art. And um, yeah, that was that was just a fantastic experience for me. I mean, it sounds a bit corny, but it it really was life changing, you know. And the final project of my MA was um, this story about a ship that rescued the Titanic and it sort of turned into rescuing Titanic. Can I just ask why children's book illustration, why you didn't go say a graphic design route or fine art? It it took a wee while for me to figure out what I was interested in. I did sort of think about graphic design and, but I just, I think I was, I just became more aware of children's illustration around me. I loved going into the Tate Modern Bookshop and of course in the bookshop, there's all these amazing children's books and that's where I really came into contact with people like Laura Carlin and Beatrice Alemania and um, John Classen. And it just, I just really fell in love with the medium, I have to say. The book Rescuing Titanic was developed while you were on that course. That's right. Yes. Yeah. It was really my the sort of culmination of my time on the MA as my final project. And um, I had an interest in nonfiction storytelling and I've been sort of looking around for a topic that I could illustrate really and I came across the story someone had written this amazing post on the actions of Captain Arthur Rostron who was a captain of the Carpathia and his crew and um, their rescue of the Titanic survivors over 700 survivors I couldn't believe I hadn't heard of the story to begin with you know I'm from Belfast you know Titanic is such a huge thing here it's really a huge part of the the city's history and its culture and I even have a bit of a link to the, the sort of shipyard industry. My, my grandfather was a naval architect for um, Harland and Wilf, who built Titanic. And my great grandfather was something called a, an iron turner. So I think he would have shaped the big propeller shafts of these ships. So 
I suppose I have that direct link with with the shipyard, but you know, I've, I'm sort of embarrassed to say I, I didn't know anything really about the ship that picked up the survivors. And as I, I suppose as I as I began to read more and more of what they achieved that night, I thought this would make a really fantastic children's story, and, and more people should know about what the captain and crew achieved. And that comes across really strongly in in the book. So you have this spark of an idea. Yes. Now, this book is actually packed with information. I learned so much. You know, I learned about Morse code. I didn't even realise that SOS was a fairly new signal at that time, that they had other kind of signals that were going on. So it was absolutely fascinating. But you can't have had that all in your head. You must have had to have done a lot of research. Yes. Um, I, the first stage of, of, of the process of making the book really was delving into the research and um, creating a sort of body of information that I could draw upon. And there's, there were some really crucial resources that I used. There were um, these two inquiries that, that happened after the sinking. They've actually been uploaded on the Internet, so anyone can go and access them, which is incredible. But um there's so many testimonies given by key crew members of the Titanic and key passengers and um, crew members of the of the Carpathia as well. And these really allowed me to, these testimonies, I suppose, really allowed me to knit together a sort of moment by moment almost picture of what happened that night. And I suppose from there, it was just a case of, of planning and plotting the information out and deciding how to tell that story, really. Mm-hmm. And I decided, I suppose I decided to tell it with the two ships in parallel with each other. And then um, when the Carpathia receives the, descri- the distress call, that's when they intersect. And I, th- I suppose that really was the most straightforward way to do it and the, the clearest way because they were they were very different ships. I mean, Titanic was obviously on its main voyage. It was the most glamorous, the biggest ship of the day. It was heading from Southampton across to New York and Carpathia was heading from New York the opposite way across the Atlantic on the southern route to the Mediterranean. It was a far more modest ship and it's been described as a, as a bit of a workhorse of a ship. So yeah, because the, the two ships were so different, I just felt telling them in parallel was the most straightforward, but also I suppose it built up a bit of drama. Mm-hmm. Also the balance between, I've already said it's very informative, the balance between that and the emotional side of the storytelling. How easy was it to get that right? And yeah. what did you play around with? It was tricky enough, yeah. It was, um, I suppose, yeah, we, we really wanted to have a sort of a wide variety of spreads, some which were more informational, which gave you know, information on how ships navigated in those days, um, Morse code, even life aboard a ship, what it was like to be on on board the Carpathia um, at that time. And then to sort of intercut it, I suppose, with the more dramatic spreads of when the distress call comes through and and how the crew react to that. And I suppose that the balance between all these different types of spreads really helped me sort of create more, I suppose, crescendos and, and slower moments. And it was, I think that really helps drive a story forward, you know, it felt very personal as well. I mean, you've you've talked about these testimonies online and you do name the characters. Sure, it's sure. not just somebody in the signalling room. We yes. know the name of that person and we follow yes. him onto the Carpathia as well. So it becomes very personal. Yeah, yeah, that was a really important thing, having a cast of characters really who readers could really identify with and sort of spot along the way. Um, 
one of the crew you've mentioned there, Harold Bride, was on the Titanic and he um, had been working to the very end of the night to send out these distress calls and, you know, was a, a real hero in that way. He was, I think he was told to clock off much earlier, but, you know, he, he and his colleague continued, the two of them continued to work on and um, he was saved from the waters that night. He and I think it was maybe 25 other crew had had found an upturned collapsible boat and stood on top of the boat for I think it must have been you know, a good number of hours, three or four hours, and had to sway with the motion of the of the waves to make sure that they didn't collapse. I mean, a really incredible, incredible story. You can't actually imagine it in the pitch black. It's just hard to get your head around, really. How mm. I mean, he was injured um, by that experience, and and he then spent a few days once he'd been rescued on the in the hospital bay on the Carpathia. But then a couple of days into their journey back, he was then brought to work with Carpathia's own wireless operator, Harold Cottam. Um, he worked with him um, to send out the, the sort of messages to family members of who had been saved and who had been lost and really obviously very a real crucial task for them both. But I was just struck by how young they were. You know, they, these guys were, you know, 20, 21, you know, and had such responsibility in their job but, and just performed them in, in such an incredible way. The drama is created by the intercutting of what's going on on both ships so while one they're rushing around like mad trying to get there as quickly as they can on the Carpathia and then we cut to a scene where people are drinking tea in the lounge yes yeah, on the yeah. Titanic <laughs> where you think they would be running around like mad but it's mm. almost like this either not knowing or not wanting to accept that so that's very dramatic yeah it was it was interesting to plan those spreads yeah as you say that that particular spread everybody's seated in the drawing room there's some musicians and I suppose I wanted it to be quite static in a way you know they were sort of anxiously waiting to be told what to do what you know to go out on deck or wait for you know there was that sense of I suppose anticipation and and not really quite knowing what to do and contrasting those spreads with the more dramatic sort of action spreads like um, there's a spread of the crew running, jumping into action and then another spread of the men working in the boiler room mm-hmm. and shoveling the coal as, as fast as they could. Those spreads, I have to say, were um, I, I really love Soviet children's illustrations and they mm-hmm. I find that a real source of inspiration for those sorts of spreads because I just love the flat kind of shapes that they created. I, I really love, I think his name's Lebedev and um, Marshak, the, the books that they created together. Um, but there's, I think there's something about the kind of repeating patterns of shapes that help create a bit of a rhythm in a spread and, and kind of propel the reader forward and um, did contrast quite a, quite a bit with the more static spreads like the, the the passengers in the in the in the drawing room, and also when Harold Cottam bursts into um, the captain's quarters, and both men are sort of I've, I've had them quite motionless in the doorway, I suppose trying to get to grips with the gravity of the situation, and that was a really important thing for me to to contrast those those kind of moments. Tell me a little bit more about how you create your pictures. It's all painted. It's all um, just done by hand. I work with watercolours and gouache paints and pencils and pastels and that sort of thing. And I think I'd say that the the, the process of doing the final, final illustrations are the most difficult for me. I find it the most stressful because 
I suppose I have a vision in my head of how I want a spread to look. And then the reality of what I can create doesn't always sort of align in that way. But I do like working traditionally. It, It works well for me. And I like sometimes that you can't always predict how things are going to look. And, and sometimes those little accidents can feed into how an image looks. And, and that that's a really wonderful thing, I think. And your role in the design of the book, did you actually lay out those spreads and the design or did, yes. did the designer have a big influence in that? Yeah, I, I, I have a really brilliant designer and editor. Um, my designer, um, Carissa, was just really supportive and just endlessly patient with me. <laughs> but um, yeah, I suppose the process, I started with the thumbnail images, which helped give a sort of sense of the layout of the whole book. And um, then I moved on to more suppose more detailed versions of those in the roughs so that she could see where I wanted to place the text and we could rework things if we needed to but still quite still quite rough images really so it really was a a bit of a a partnership in that way our vision I think for the book really was very similar so it was a real joy to work to work with her well I think it'd be really nice to have a look inside the book and perhaps talk about some of these spreads and it'll give us an opportunity to pick up on some of the things that you've mentioned I'd probably ask you really if there's a couple of spreads that you'd like to talk about there's a couple towards the end there's a a spread of the ship returning to the harbour in New York which I'm quite fond of so you've chosen here a spread which is called Land Ahoy can you tell us what we can see in this picture yes so we're seeing Carpathia returning to the Hudson River flanked by a number of tugboats on which were a mix of journalists shouting out information to the boat to try and um, get information for their stories. But there was a real, I really wanted there to be a real sense of anticipation and of the furore of of the ship coming back into the harbour. And I think I was just really pleased with how it turned out. The conditions that night were very calm and there was no real weather to speak of, if you know what I mean. It was a, a sort of calm sea, no waves. There was no moon that night. I, I actually find it quite difficult to to kind of have anything to grab hold of, if you know what I mean. So I was I was really thankful that at this moment in in history there was an incredible sort of rain shower that night, and I, I, I'm sort of looking really enjoyed depicting that in the image and the lights of the boat um, and the contrasting with the lights of the cars going past on the on the bridge, the trails of steam from the funnels of the various ships yeah yeah I'm going to scroll through this was interesting this is called passengers and we've got um the gangplank as the passengers board the ship yes and you've separated it into different panels yes yeah yeah I've got um a number of different couples um boarding the Carpathia and I decided to use panels to help differentiate between between the different couples and also to kind of give a little bit of information about who they were and um, why they were on the ship. So there was um, a mother and daughter on Carpathia who were going on a a trip around the the Mediterranean and Bernice is her name, the the daughter, and she has taken her new camera with her, this new sort of invention, the Kodak Box Brownie camera to document her trip. And we've also got a journalist and his wife also going on the ship for a holiday themselves. And um, an artist called Colin Campbell Cooper, who um, was was journeying with his with his wife. So yeah, the, the panels really helped the reader, I suppose, distinguish between who the the couples were and, and 
give me the space to, to include a little bit of information, some little vignettes of, of mm. who they were. Together with their artefacts, because it could have been presented as one spread. So yes. it's interesting visually what that does. Yeah. Um, and can I just ask, because I was intrigued, do you know that this character, the 18-year-old Bernice Palmer, did she really have the box brownie? Yes, um, she, she really did have her, her camera on board and she she actually took a picture of um, what people think was the iceberg that, that sunk the Titanic. So just incredible, incredible artefacts that, that we now have today to, to sort of look back on. Some of the perspectives are really interesting as well. So we've got a mix of things like cut-throughs of, You've got one of life on board here. Yes. Showing, I mean, I think this is fascinating how much of a ship is actually below the water level. Mm, Absolutely. (laughs) Amazing, isn't it? The majority of it sits below. It's it's interesting that. um, No, I was a a big fan of the Dorling Kindersley um, cross-section books. And this was my sort of, my own version of a sort of cross-section. But I mean, this this was probably one of the most difficult spreads for me. There's plenty of drawings of the Titanic, of, of the, the layout, but there's very few of the Carpathia. And it actually went through a refit during its lifetime. So I, I had a, a diagram of how it looked in the initial years, but then it was refitted for first class passengers. So it was it was tricky to plan exactly where everything was going to go. But I sort of made a few educated guesses, I would say, on where the various um, rooms were, but I've, I have tried to be as accurate as I can. And um, it was a fun spread to do and, and include all the characters. Mm-hmm. Let's have a look at one more. Mm-hmm. So this is called the Titanic Calls for Help. And we've got the Titanic and then a number of ships around the That's right. radius. Yes. yes. And then these white lines these dotted lines. Is this Morse code? Yes, this is supposed to, yeah, to represent the Morse code, the sort of CQD and SOS messages that were sent out. Um, CQD was the original distress call, and that was uh, replaced by SOS, which was, I think, more musical and, and was easily distinguishable um, because it's three dots and three dashes and three dots. So it, you could immediately notice it if you were listening out and this this spread was actually influenced by um, there were a number of illustrations um, printed in newspapers at the time um, after the disaster and there was one of the little ship of the of the Titanic and all these lines emanating from it of the distress calls being sent out to the other ships in the area so this that was really um, a a great sort of um, source of inspiration for me those those early illustrations and I just really wanted to show the sort of effort involved of the crew sending out these distress calls to all the ships in the area. There was the Olympic, the Frankfurt, um, various different ships um, who received the call. And it's actually one ship called the Californian who I haven't listed, who were very close to the Titanic when it when it sank. And there's a little bit of controversy on why they didn't respond. Wow. I think they didn't receive the distress call. I think their um, wireless operators had gone to bed at that time, but they saw the fireworks that the Titanic was, was sending up. And I think they assumed they were having a party or something. I, I don't think they thought they were in danger, but yeah, there's a wee bit of a, a controversy on why they didn't respond because they were, they were far closer than any of the other ships in the area. Oh my goodness. Yeah, oh yeah, my goodness. <laughs> so I can see your inky blue seas. This is watercolour, is yes, it? That's right. Yeah. And then yeah. the character's this is like a crayon pastel. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, pastel around pastel, there. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then comparing it to the boiler room, 
just tell us a little bit about how this was created. This is a mixture of watercolor and some pastel as well to kind of to show the the sort of furnace is burning brightly. So yeah, that that it was sort of a, a mixed media piece. This one, and as I say, I just I just love I love a repeating pattern. I love I love a strong posture, and um, I do think that diagonal line helps create a bit of a a rhythm and movement through the image. Your, your eye is guided that way, and. I think it does propel the reader forward and encourage them to turn the page. Tell us about your your colour palette, because it is, I mean, it could have been incredibly colourful. I'm sure that, you know, the the lounge in the Titanic, there would have been lots of colour around. Yeah. So you have limited the colours in the book. So yes. how did you come up with your colour range? I suppose it was really influenced by... The conditions of the night. I mean, there's, there's, as you say, there's a lot of inky blues and deeper colours, and um, that really reflected the conditions of that night. And I really wanted to contrast that with the lights of the ship, the kind of the yellows and the fireworks and that sort of thing. So I suppose, yeah, that would they really formed the basis of the palette. Mm. And once you've got that range, are you quite strict in sticking to? I try to be. be, It's 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 hard sometimes to create like that that you know. I suppose this is my first book and um, being consistent in that way was a, was a challenge, but I did try and be strict with myself and, and stick to it as much as possible. But yeah, no, it absolutely was a challenge to be as consistent as possible with each of the spreads. So it looked like a cohesive book. It's an absolutely fantastic book, uh, Flora. I wonder what you're working on now. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm actually working on another book with Cordo. Um, it's part of a, a series that we're doing called Hidden Histories. So it's looking at historical events from different perspectives. And I'm working on a book about um, the Klondike Gold Rush. And I, I don't know why, but I've always been struck by the images from the Klondike Gold Rush. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but there's there's lots of photographs of sort of long lines of prospectors sort of sneaking up. This it's called the Chilkoot Pass, which is one of the, the sort of main routes to the gold fields in the Klondike. And I and I sort of I really started with those images really, and I wanted to know more about who these people were that were that were heading there and sort of risking everything to to make their fortune, I suppose. And I came across a really interesting group of women who made a success of their time. They they sort of you know, it was a Victorian society, but they sort of cast off the expectations of the day and went out, some of them by themselves, to, to kind of make a fortune. And they're really incredible women. So the book is um, is really about this a group of women that I that I came across in my research. So, I've, yeah, I've written the first draft of that, and I'm sure it'll go through many more changes, but um, that's that's what I've been working on. Is the connection to this book perhaps in the Irish-American experience yeah yeah because it was funny I didn't go out looking for it but a lot of the women who I've come across um, were immigrants from Ireland they fled during the famine years and came across to America and started a new life so yeah it it is it's a really nice thing that actually I feel a bit of a connection to them in a way well it's been a real pleasure talking to you today thank you so much for taking the time to explain to us how this wonderful book rescuing titanic came about oh no thank you nikki it's been it's been a pleasure in the reading corner is presented by nikki gamble and produced by alison hughes if you have enjoyed this podcast please do leave a review for us to find out about other projects including an audience with events and the exploring children's literature summer school visit www.exploringchildrensliterature.com
www.thepodcastnetwork.co.uk. Join us again soon in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.